The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio. This is the Employment Law Show on Global News Radio. All righty, welcome to it. It is uh, seven minutes after seven o'clock, and welcome, yeah, to the Employment Law Show, first one of the new week. We hope you're going to stick around for the entire thing. If you have some questions in mind, yep, Stan Fanselberg is doing all the heavy lifting tonight. Could be anything about severance or being laid off or a temporary layoff due to COVID 19, all that stuff and more. It's fair game. So uh, just ask it. If you've always wondered, just ask it. You'll get an answer. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. And uh, as you know, I've mentioned before, Sam Firu Tamarkin, LLP, the most positively reviewed employment law firm in this country. That you can check out uh, anytime as well. So there you go. But first, we uh, get to a, a ton of emails tonight is where we're going to go down the road. Uh, Stan first. Uh, what do you want? Week that was. What do you think's going on? Something maybe from across the pond. Yes, a huge ruling actually from across the pond on uh, on something that should be very familiar to our listeners, which is the Uber case. And people who have listened to this radio show for a long time will know that we at Semphira to Morgan are leading the charge here in Canada uh, to try to get Uber drivers their proper classification mm-hmm. and the protections and rights that come with it. And helping us out from across the pond, John, Uh, was a very recent Supreme Court ruling on this exact issue. So in February, the Supreme Court in the UK released a ruling that said Uber drivers are actually not self-employed independent contractors. They are what in the UK are called workers. Uh, Mm. A worker is very similar to our system here in Canada where we have employees, then we have independent contractors, and then something in between the two, which is a dependent contractor, a worker in the UK is between an employee and an individual who's self-employed, so coming with certain rights and protections under their employment laws. And it was very interesting to read why the UK Supreme Court came to this decision. It really highlighted five issues when reviewing the, uh, the relationship between Uber and its drivers. So firstly, it indicated how much control that Uber had over how these people made money and how the prices were entirely set by Uber. You know, individual people had no ability to increase, decrease that price whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Number two, they indicated how little autonomy these drivers had when it came to actually negotiating the terms of their contract. Anyone who's driven for Uber or has frankly taken an Uber knows that you get Whenever you sign up for this app, you get a 100-page document with uh, a ton of legalese that, let's be honest, nobody actually reads because it would be, take you all day. Uh, no, just like anybody else who wants to use Uber services, if you want to drive for Uber, you have to agree to those terms in that 100-page uh, document. You have no ability to negotiate those. Another aspect that the court said was an indication that these people are not just self-employed. Uh, The third aspect is the drivers were subject to Uber's control pursuant to the passenger rating system, which was very interesting. So not saying that they had a direct ability to to control the drivers, but because through this indirect way, they could essentially disqualify you from using Uber 
if your rating system got too low, they maintain significant control over your job and your ability to earn a livelihood. Fourthly, the court stated that drivers are subject to certain penalties if they decline rides. So not only do you get uh, penalized if you have a negative rating, if you're not, if you don't feel like taking certain rides because they're outside of your domain, you're, you know, you don't, you're not going in that direction, what have you, mm -hmm. you do that often enough, they will actually penalize you and could, like, again, kick you off the app. Wow. And lastly, Uber restricted the ability of individuals to talk to the passengers through the app. What? Yeah, wow. and, they, and they essentially made it impossible for you to form a relationship with that individual rider. You know, it was entirely Uber who had that relationship as an intermediary. So the other thing that the court actually said that was very interesting here, and it's something that's also been said by our courts in Canada, is that looking at the terms of the contract itself, are almost, you know, immaterial to determining the status of an individual. And, and what it sounds when actually looking at this contract between Uber and, uh, and their drivers is that the way the relationship worked did not in, all, in any way reflect what the contract said the relationship looked like. You know, the contract talked about how they're independent, self-employed, you know, and can work for themselves, what have you. That's right. not in reality, you know, as I mentioned, those five factors, not even close to how the relationship worked. You know, Uber, at the end of the day, maintained a significant amount of control over these people. And while they weren't necessarily found to be employees because they do not, you know, they do have some hallmarks of independence in the UK system, they are still, you know, entitled to certain protections and rights, very similarly to how in Canada, if you're founded to be a dependent contractor, you have a lot of the same protections and rights as an employee. And, and you know, to kick it on top of all of that, John, uh, because of this ruling, Uber now owes the government of the, the United Kingdom 2 billion euros in taxes. Oh, my God. Because they didn't withhold certain value-added tax, essentially what's a, like a sales tax. Yeah. So the, there's real-life implications for these legal decisions, and Uber just got hit with a very big one. Uh, and, you know, this is another step. This is now the second jurisdiction I'm aware of that has classified uh, Uber drivers as something more than just independent contractors. California was the first. And in California, as crazy as this sounds, Uber, rather than giving up, passed a referendum reversing the court's decision, or had, I should say, launched a campaign to patent which in which a referendum was voted in overturning the court's decision. So that just shows you how far Uber will go to ensure that their business model can be maintained and they can be as profitable as possible, even on the backs of these poor individuals who are doing the heavy lifting. I, I guess Uber, no matter where the jurisdiction be, California, you know, the UK or here in Canada, it, it's Uber's Uber. So it, they, they should be using the same yardstick as far as employees all over the world right so the same same thing should apply here because it sounds like uh employment laws in the uk and i know california is very close to canada california and new york are probably the closest the rest of the states it's you know it's employment at will <laughs> but that should hold water here as well should it not when it uh, when it eventually comes up uh, comes up in court i guess you could say uh, absolutely i mean so you know our laws are very similar built essentially they're built on the uk's laws we right. both both countries have the, what we call the common law. 
And our employment laws, you know, are literally built on the UK rulings from the 18th, 19th, and 20th century. So to have this precedent now, where you know our laws are similar enough that they're very difficult for for a company like Uber to now try to distinguish our laws from the UK's laws, you know, again, they're going to have a very uphill battle here. And you know that Lior is going to be fighting very hard for for all these drivers to get what they are entitled to. Yeah, I remember the uh, the beginning of this whole thing. It was, I, I mean, the first step of the fight that Lior triumphed on was, um, I think at one point it was, you know, you had to go to the Netherlands or something under your own expense to uh, to battle Uber in some sort of legal dispute or employment dispute, which is completely asinine. That's no longer a part of the part of the uh, part of the dynamic. So, I mean, that that hurdle is now over with, right? Yeah, no, uh, exactly what you're saying there. So the original uh, decision where we were successful at the Supreme Court was uh, the question was, well, Uber had these contracts, and one of those clauses in a 100-page contract was in uh, a clause that said that if you want to dispute anything with Uber, if you want to dispute a $5 charge that you want to dispute, you have to go arbitration in The Hague uh, in the Netherlands, and you have to pay $14,000. so, you know, again, it went all the way to Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, I think, found something that literally you and I could think, are probably thinking right now. Well, that's unconscionable. I mean, it's, it's unconscionable to send somebody and pay the, to the Netherlands to pay them for and make them pay $14,000 to fight any dispute against this company. So yeah. now that that ruling has been set and that precedent has been set, it goes all the way down. Unfortunately, the, uh, the gears of justice do turn slowly in our country. And back to basically the starting point where we now are fighting the case of whether these people are indiv- you know, self, uh, self-employed or whether they're dependent contractors and employees, as we said. Unreal, man. I'm going to be following this one very closely as you guys and Leora tackle them, uh, tackle them once again. we got a call coming through. Paul, we'll take that after a break. Paul, stand by. Don't go anywhere. Keep your phone handy. We will get to you and your call. Stan Fainzelberg is your guy. Just getting warmed up here. Employment Law Show, the Monday night edition continues. This is Global News Radio. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio. Welcome back to the Employment Law Show on Global News Radio. And welcome back to the show. Indeed, Stan Fainzelberg is your guy handling all the uh, the phone calls tonight. You just have to pick up a phone. That's your only job and have a question ready. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. I promise we're going to get to a, a ton of emails this evening as well. But Paul is up first. Paul, thanks so much for standing by patiently. How are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. Beautiful. What's on your mind? Um, I actually have a, a question. I worked for um, kind of a, a hands-away government agency, but they were all government policy. Um, and uh, and basically what I was doing was, uh, was working there, cleaning the place. Um, I, 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 I'm quite sure that I probably don't have to name it. But uh, anyway, 
when I was hired, I was hired in uh, January of 2015, and uh, I had a one-year contract, and the one-year contract expired, and I continued to work there until April of last year, and when COVID hit, they basically locked the place down and um, sent me a bunch of pictures of stuff that wasn't proper and so on and so forth. And just wondering what my status would have been, um, not like working for almost five years without a contract. And I, I am an independent contractor. Right. Well, I, I, Firstly, I mean, in terms of whether you're an independent contractor, like I was saying earlier, it very much depends not on what's written down on paper, but what the actual facts of the relationship are. You know, the, the main one being how much control do they exercise over your ability to earn a livelihood? Um, like if you work there full time, if uh, you have a regular schedule, if you have no other place of employment or any other place where you provide your services, then more at a minimum, you're likely a dependent contractor or possibly an employee. So, but I mean, true. If you're a true independent contractor, independent contractors do not have entitlements to notice or severance. So the the first question would be essentially deciding whether you're an, actually are an independent contractor or if you're a dependent contractor or an employee. If you fall in the the latter category, then the fact that you don't have a contract does not matter whatsoever. Um, every re employment relationship, if there's nothing written, has an implied contract. And one of the implied terms is that you're actually required to be given proper notice or severance. So the fact that you, you, know, you had a contract that expired after a year, but you kept working, well, all that happens there is that one-year contract gets converted into what we call an indefinite term contract, essentially meaning nobody, neither party knows when the relationship will end. Uh, from the sounds of it, I mean, it sounds to me that you probably fall into one of those categories as a dependent contractor or employee, and that you know they, they probably owe you notice or severance of some kind, considering the fact that your contract lapsed and you kept working there for another four years. Yeah, it was, uh, it was basically a weekend thing, and, uh, and it, was, it was like $1,600 a month. Okay, so it's not necessarily your main job, you're saying. If, you're, if it is a true independent contractor relationship, as I say, you're not entitled to severance or notice. Um, and if there was no sort of clause that in a, in a written contract that required them to give that to you, technically speaking, if they just said, you know, we don't need you anymore, there's nothing, you know, nothing technically wrong with that if it is actually a true independent contractor relationship. I appreciate your uh, your uh, you know advice. Thank you very much. No problem. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate your time and uh, standing by. Well, we took a short break there. Enjoy the rest of uh, of your week. Let's get to some uh, some emails. Stan, and they're coming through. Help at employmentlawyer.ca is the way to do that. Jasmine's up first. Says uh, Stan, I've worked as a server slash bartender in the establishment for over sixteen years. The bar was closed March sixteenth due to COVID, and it still hasn't reopened. I've been trying to contact the owner-manager of the establishment, but he doesn't answer or call back. What do I do? Uh, 
That is a very difficult question to answer simply because, I mean, it's hard to know what's going on with your company, right? Are they still around? Um, are they reopening? The reality is that if they do reopen, Jasmine, they cannot avoid either calling you back or providing you with a fair severance because regardless of what, you know, how much money they may have lost, unfortunately, due to COVID, that, doesn't all, that burden doesn't shift to you as an employee alone. You know, you still have rights, you still have entitlements, you still, and if they're if choosing to not bring you back, they're essentially choosing to terminate you, and they need to know what that means in terms of what they owe you. Uh, that's every employer's obligation in Ontario, essentially. You know, right. they can't plead ignorance if they're not, if they don't want to bring you back and they have to pay you out. You want to reach out uh, further, Jasmine? You got the email address, obviously. That's where we got your contact. But it is one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred to reach Stan and the rest of his team by phone. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Who's up next? We got uh, Kelly. Kelly says, "Guys, I had an argument with my boss because he refuses to pay us during our lunch break. Is he allowed to do that?" So, Kelly, actually in Ontario. Uh, the Employment Standards Act says that you are entitled to a 30-minute unpaid break for every five hours that you work. So the short answer would likely be, yeah, he doesn't have to pay you for your 30-minute lunch break. That being said, if he has established a precedent of paying you for, you know, for years and all of a sudden decides to take that away, well, that's no different than reducing your hours or wages and could be seen as a constructive dismissal. So if it was an hour lunch break, he'd be on the hook for half of it, right? Well, he is, the thing is he doesn't have to provide an hour lunch break because technically right. he only has to provide a half-hour break ah. for every five hours of employment. The reason that you do provide the half-hour hour is because most people work an eight-hour day, so they mm. get two half-hour unpaid. Uh, gotcha. <laughs> totally makes sense. Jane Gohead says, uh, my manager has made numerous inappropriate sexual comments to me. I've told him to stop and talk to HR about it, but he is the owner's brother, and they won't do anything. What can I do at this point? Yeah. Uh, it, John, it's something you, I actually hear a lot where we, so many people work for tiny companies, family-run companies, that we have to remember that they don't have anyone to turn to when it's actually one of the family members who's doing the harassment, or in this case, sexual harassment. And that's exactly why we have things like the Ministry of Labor, um, the Human Rights Tribunal, and the court system itself to address problems like these that Jane is having. So there's actually quite a lot she can do. I mean, firstly, she can uh, talk to the Ministry of Labor and file what's called an occupational health and safety complaint under the OHASA provisions, which require them to have a work uh, harassment free workplace and the inspector will actually come in and do an inspection of the workplace you can also bring a human rights tribunal complaint claiming discrimination on the basis of sexual harassment and lastly you know you can always choose to treat that sexual harassment as a constructive dismissal itself as a termination and walk walk away from the job claiming that you've been terminated and there are therefore entitled to your severance pay so I know it may not seem like it, but you do have options, Jane. And, you know, the best place to, to really find out about those options are speaking to a lawyer. 
Always do that. Uh, Jane, give Stan a call, 1-855-821-5900. By the way, you can also use the uh, the website too, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. That's absolutely free and anonymous, but there is a contact button there as well if you want to use that. Trevor, short question says, what is the most severance that I can get if I am terminated? Done. <laughs> A uh, short question, but a complicated answer. Because, That's right. Because <laughs> there really is no, you know, way to determine that without knowing your Trevor's factors. I mean, we, as we all know, that the way severance is calculated based on your age, your position, your length of employment, and your ability to find new employment in the future. Uh, based on those factors, our courts have said unofficially that there's about a 24-month cap on how much severance or notice somebody is entitled to. Anything above that really requires exceptional circumstances. So in short, I mean, the most you can get is 24 months realistically. Uh, The most Trevor can get would depend on those four factors I mentioned earlier. Hope that helped, Trevor. Uh, Trevor, if you want to call to, uh, to Stan and get a little more a lengthy answer because you had a really short question, and it's going to require some uh, drilling down on that sucker. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Kathy Joe is up next. Kathy Joe says, "Guys, my employer is trying to make me sign a contract for the first time in get this twenty years. They are saying if I don't, they will fire me, and I'm really scared and don't know what to do. How about let them fire you?" That's that's always one option. I mean, that's yeah. the one that most people don't uh, really consider or think that's about. Right. But yeah. in a situation like that, where you have an employer, you're essentially you know giving you a take it or leave it ultimatum, uh, and frankly, an illegal ultimatum because notwithstanding the fact that they're giving you this contract and saying you have to sign it, well, unless they actually give you something for the contract, if they give, unless they give you a, a salary increase, more vacation, more benefits something tangible of benefit to you, well, that contract is not going to be enforceable whether you sign it or not, because it fails for what we call lack of consideration. Uh, But, you know, if that's what your employer is telling you, then I can tell you unequivocally, you don't have to sign that contract. Uh, You not signing that contract is by no means a resignation. As I said earlier, every employment relationship has an implied contract. And you have an implied contract that governs your relationship right now. Now they are starting to tumble in. I love this. Constantine, thanks for hanging on. Good evening. Uh, good evening. Thank you for taking my call. I just want to know real quick, what are the options for my sister that was sexually harassed uh, working for a corporation, uh, and they already claimed responsibility for the harassment and um, very serious, very serious uh I guess charges, I don't know what the word is, Uh, very serious things that happened at work and uh, the management is now saying you have options to her, but she doesn't know what to do. So she just bows her head down and works for the corporation and she's been given all these uh, cushy uh, jobs, uh, like like, please please don't go to anyone, please just take this, that and the other. What what, what are her options? Well, I mean, if if, if this has happened to her repeatedly, then the company has admitted uh, she's got a lot of options. I mean, the most real, the one that jumps out right away is that she has the option to sue them. Um, nobody is required to work in a sexual harassment environment. Uh, if they've engaged in that, I mean, not only is it constructive dismissal, there are all kinds of torts or different claims that you can bring against a company that's 
If you don't mind, sorry for interruption, I'll take you in the direction. She was, she is gay, and she was called homophobic slurs, and they admitted to it and dismissed the supervisor, and she was given okay. a nice cushiony job. I mean, that, I, I understand they're trying to appease her from the sounds of it by, you know, essentially trying to make it so that she won't go the legal route, but she always has that option. I mean, they can't undo what happened. If, if she's been discriminated against, you know. She's been, in the hospital, she's been hospitalized several times for, for depression, anxiety, and uh, suicidal tendencies. You know, I, I think this is a better uh, conversation for us to have offline, really. So I'd like, I'd love to speak to your sister and sort of discuss the options and get more details from her because it sounds like a complicated situation. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm very sorry to hear that she's going through this. Constantine, I'm going to give you a number you can use. Uh, well, first email address as well, help at employmentlawyer.ca to reach out to Stan and one eight five five. 821-5900 is the way to uh, to call Stan, get a hold of him uh, in just a little while. We'll get to uh, to Rob. Hey, Rob, thanks for standing by. Good evening. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. Listen all the time. Thanks, uh, my, my son has recently worked for a national sporting chain that's uh, shutting down, and he's been offered to be transferred to another part of their branch. He's been <laughs> there for nine, nine years, and he doesn't want to go to the other part of that company. Does if he did, doesn't take that offer to go, does he lose his severance opportunity? So most likely, I would say he does not. Uh, if he's being, when you say to a different branch, are you saying like a, he has to physically change his physical location, or it's just with a different job within the same physical location? I don't know if I can say the name of the company. So National Sports is shutting down, and he's been yeah. offered to go to the other chain. And they'll get him a position there, but they're trying to help him out, make sure. But he doesn't want to go to that other chain of the company. So he says, if I turn it down and don't go to that other part of the company, do I lose my opportunity for severance? And I told him, do not sign anything. I learned on yeah, that. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Don't sign anything until you talk to someone. Uh, in terms of evaluating a situation, I would say, like, firstly, you got to look at what's the new job and is it comparable? Because if it's really a situation where they're physically shutting down, you know, his company or his branch, but they're offering him a comparable job, you know, across the street, then that's going to be very difficult to try to argue that's constructive dismissal, notwithstanding the fact that that isn't the job he wanted. Um, Okay. Essentially, you'd have to be able to differentiate the job and explain to a court very clearly why this was not what you initially agreed to or even comparable to what you initially agreed to. And if the court agrees with you, then they're going to say you don't have to take that job. No, to be honest, it is comparable, but it's not. It's a further drive to get to the new location, and he's like, that's a consideration when you know talking about the comparability of it. As I said, it's not just about what the job is, but also the physical location. If if it requires him to do an extra hour or two of commuting every day, well, that's certainly not comparable in my eyes. No, in all honesty, maybe an extra 10 minutes. So I'm thinking it, it is comparable. So they're fair offering a comparable position, but in a 50-minute drive extra, that's it. Yeah, I mean, 15 minutes is a... It, no. Yeah. There, are, there are a lot to make some reasonable changes. I mean, there are some... Uh, the court does give some leeway to employers to try to manage their workforce in, in a reasonable way. I mean, I, I've from the case law, I've seen 
if it's a matter of 15 minutes and difference in location, that's probably not enough in and of itself. It's right. usually once you get to about an hour, two hours, or just a different job, that's when they start getting into the constructive dismissal territory. Okay, so it, it is a comparable offering. I give them credit for offering him very comparable. It's nothing, so he has an option to either take it, and if he doesn't take it, there's no severance. He just he was offered a position. Uh, well, it depends on how they – it gets actually very technical from there because if they say, okay, if you don't take it, then you've resigned, well, that's yeah. not technically true either. Uh, there are some te- legal technical loopholes where you can kind of you – know, if they make a wrong move, you might be able to exploit it. Uh, and, you know, I think the best advice I can give them at this point is to maybe talk to a lawyer, see what his options are, and if there's a way to kind of turn the situation into a termination itself. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I, like I told them, I said, they offer you this. If they give you something to sign, do not sign. Just make right. sure you give it to a lawyer. So I appreciate it. And then uh, when we get that paperwork, we'll give you a call. Beauty. Thanks, Rob. Well uh, well handled for sure. And here's the uh, the number you probably already know because you listen all the time. But one 821 5900 for conversation off air and uh, help at employmentlawyer.ca. But here and now, Tom, thank you for standing by. Good evening. Hey guys, great show. Nice to be with Thanks, you. Man. Beautiful. What's up? Got a question. Yeah, I got a question as it relates to COVID-19. Mm. So, hypothetically, let's say the airlines say you have to have a vaccine to travel. My job, my job entails that I do have to travel to visit customers. If I refuse to take that vaccine, am I uh, and the, the company decides, hey, it's part of your job description? Uh, can they? Uh, let me go. Uh, I would say that not only could they let you go, but they can either try to argue that it's cause, but or more likely you can make the argument that it's what we call frustration of contract, where, you know, if a third party says that you need a vaccine to fly, and, uh, and I mean, that's not a, a term that the company is itself imposing on, on you, that's the third party, but your job just requires you to fly, if you can't why essentially then that's that's clearly frustration of contract meaning that through no party's fault the employment relationship can't be continued so unfortunately to say you know if that's what would happen in this hypothetical then yeah i would say the company can probably either let you go but more more than likely i would say it's frustration of contract would they have to offer me uh, another position or not really no they not really. I mean, it's uh, it's not like your job isn't available to you. It's it's because of a third party's restrictions that you're not able to do it. Um, I would say again, they won't have to offer you that uh, another job, and it's most likely going to be frustration of contract. If not, you know, another way to possibly interpret this is that it would be insubordination on your part. Neither of which, unfortunately, leads to I'm sure the result that you're hoping. Yeah, you know what? I think there's going to be a lot of these issues coming up in the near future. Yep. You bet there yep. is. Yeah, you bet there oh, is. Oh, there's going to be a lot of stuff boiling down out of COVID-19, I think, uh, Stan, that we haven't even haven't even tackled yet as far as that's concerned, temporary layoffs and all that stuff, reducing workforces, and uh, employers going to be introducing all kinds of new employment contracts midstream. So you guys will be uh, busy for sure. In the next couple of years, I would imagine, I want to get to uh, Rick while we still got some time. Hi, Rick. Thanks for calling in. How are you? Hey, how you doing? Good, brother. What's up? 
I had a question there. Uh, I work for a federally regulated carrier. I'm a truck driver. I don't do long distance here. But just out of curiosity, if something happens to me in the States, since it is a, it's a federal regulated carrier, does federal labor laws, do they trump provincial labor laws? So it doesn't quite work that way. I mean, it's not that they trump the provincial laws. It's that as a federally regulated carrier, only federal laws apply to you. So you, you don't get the benefits of the provincial laws. Uh, essentially, I think that's what you were asking. Yeah, well, if, if something happens in the states there where I mean, I'm still, still, I mean, I'm still covered WSIB in a lot of way, but I'm just saying something yeah. to do with, with, the, with the labor issue. I'm just kind of wondering if, if I, not against a, an American company, but I'm, does the law apply to me? Barely. Like, would it be federal? Well, the law still applies apply to your employment relationship with the company. Uh, so, if you're talking about if something happened in in um, in the United States from an employment standpoint, it doesn't matter where you physically are, your the employment laws in Canada apply to you because you're a Canadian employee. Okay, I just kind of wonder because I heard different. I heard federal federal labor laws and the Trump provincial laws. Uh, again, it's not that they trump. I mean, I think you might get, be getting this somewhat confused with the American system, where there is more interplay here uh, between federal and provincial and state laws. In Canada, I mean, either you're a provincially regulated company, which like 90 to 95% of companies are provincially regulated. And then for very specific sectors like transportation or, um, or aerospace, uh, in those sectors, the federal government has its own statute and federal laws apply to and provincial laws don't. Rick, safe travels. Thanks for the call. We got time just barely to squeeze in Matthew. Matthew, quickly, what's, uh, what's your question, brother? Uh, so very quickly, um, I was laid off in March uh, from one of the major hotel chains by the airport due to COVID-19. Um, they just recently became a quarantine hotel. Right. And they uh, they called me back, but I found other employment elsewhere, which is actually more hours than what they called me back for. And so I said, no, I can't come back at this time. I'm wondering, like, is that just cause to let me go or, like, uh, it's it's not just cause, but it is probably a resignation. Um, but that being said, they may not have had the right to lay you off in the first place, which can in and of itself be a constructive dismissal. So you may have an option to pursue them that way. And and like dur- like during the layoff, they were in contact with me and they were telling employees, hey, you know, go look for work. Things aren't looking so good with the hotel. So. I found work, and now all of a sudden, oh, wait, no, we need you back. We need you back right away because we're busy again. So right. I, I found work, but now they're saying, oh, no, no, you got to come back now. Well, you know, as a laid-off employee, you have a right to go work somewhere else, of course. Mm-hmm. But the understanding, obviously, is that there is, the employment relationship continues to exist. And if they recall you, you know, even if you have another job, you can always choose to come back or you could choose not to come back. The reason they were probably telling you to go find other work is that they know that once you find another job, they if they call you back, you're likely not going to come back. And therefore, you're going to save them the the money of, of having to let you actually terminate you and pay you out, unfortunately. Because if you, get, if you refuse a recall, that's unfortunately a resignation. 
Matthew, last call tonight. Appreciate that. Hope that helped. If you want more information, continue the conversation with Stan. Now that we're done, that could be done at one 821 5900 Help at employmentlawyer.ca. You just go to employmentlawyer.ca. That's where you'll find links to our long-running TV show. And then finally, the uh, the website you should go to regardless. That is pocketemploymentlawyer.ca as well. Stan, nicely done, pal. We'll talk to you at a later date. And we're back here Wednesday evening on the Employment Law Show. But don't go anywhere. Coming right back with Alex Pearson on Point Continues on Global News Radio. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio.